This morning we are in Acts chapter 8. We will, have, we will spend a little time next week having a Christmas message, but this morning I want to continue in Acts chapter 8, although we will discover a little bit of Christmas in, in Acts chapter 8 as well. So we'll try to make that connection as well. We're, we're in an interesting passage this morning. Start, we're going to be in, starting in verse 9, I believe it is, of chapter 8. Yes, verse 9. It's an interesting passage because we're introduced to a man by the name of Simon. Obviously not Simon Peter. He's commonly known as Simon the sorcerer. Um, and it's an interesting story because it kind of flies in the face of some of how we typically think about salvation. If you've read ahead, you've read about Simon in the passage, and it's a little interesting. And I hope you'll see that as we work our way through, and I hope we can today bring some resolution to the seeming conflict theologically in the text. But there's more than just the conflict in the text that's important, and so I want to try to draw out the importance of the text for us as we continue to develop our study. I want to remind you in Acts chapter 8 that what we find in this passage with regard to Simon is we will find, again, this is skinning out or fleshing out the statements in Acts chapter 1. Remember we said that. That's what you're going to see all the way through the book of Acts. Remember, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. And speaking of which, thank you for your confession this morning. Uh, excellent challenge. Uh, challenging challenge, if I may use that, those terms together. Very challenging, very convicting. And I hope that you all listen to that. Um, and uh, I would encourage you. I almost felt like saying there's the message this morning. Um, because it's something we desperately need to be reminded of. Uh, it's a challenge to ask ourselves. And I appreciate what you said. I'm deviating from our study this morning right now, but this is not about going out and doing better or trying harder. You ask the question, why? Why is it that we, we are so thrilled, so excited, so, so desirous of proclaiming a newborn baby, but we're not? with the newborn baby. And I appreciate the way you put that because it's not, come on, let's get going. The question is why? Why? And I think that the text that we're going to be in this morning is going to challenge our thinking along that line some. And so I think there's a real good connection between what you shared this morning, Ken, and our text this morning. Before we start, though, let's have a word of prayer and then we can work our way through this text this morning. Lord, help us as we consider this passage and consider why you had this included in the Scriptures and how we should handle what is said here. But Lord, I pray you'll help us not merely to solve the, the theological concerns here, but help us to have hearts that are open to being challenged and being convicted and at the same time um, being very joyful because of what you say. So glorify yourself in our study this morning. Open our eyes to see the truth of this text and help us to be changed and to worship. In your name I pray. Amen. So starting in verse 9, Luke records this story this way. Now you remember, if I give a little background, you'll remember that, that Philip is in Samaria. Why is he in Samaria? They just got scattered because of the persecution. That's right. Stephen got killed. Stephen, the one, one um, deacon that was killed for his ministry. Philip, another deacon is part of the group that got scattered because we saw in the previous text two weeks ago that, that the apostles remained in 
Jerusalem, but the rest of the Christians, for the most part, got scattered. Philip was one of those who got scattered. Many of them moved to Samaria. Obviously a fulfillment of the prophecy, right? He said, you should be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Many got scattered into Samaria. The, the, the promise of God, the prophecy of Jesus Christ, the final prophecy before He went to heaven is beginning to become fulfilled. They're in Samaria. Philip preaches the Gospel. He proclaims Christ. And people begin to be saved. That brings us, we're still in Samaria. Philip's ministry is still ongoing. And, and in Samaria, and in the midst of this, this, this tightness of story, we're introduced to Simon, starting in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, that when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only believed in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw the Spirit, or that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And that's our text this morning. It is interesting, if you listen to the text at all, there's, there's certain things that are going to pop. And I'm going to try to po probably point a few of these things out. But there's, if you're thinking much at all about the Scriptures, you may very well recognize there's a similarity between this text and another text in the Old Testament. Does anybody have any idea what the similarity may be? What the text may be that's similar? It didn't dawn, me at, uh, dawn on me at first as well until I really started thinking about it. Moses and Pharaoh. I think there's, there's a very close similarity, not quite parallel, but a very close similarity between Moses and Pharaoh. The interaction between Moses and Pharaoh and the interaction between Peter and Simon. It's pretty intriguing what you see there, um, parallel or similarity-wise. In any case, the Spirit of God's obviously working. Is, it, is He not in Samaria? The Spirit of God is moving dramatically. 
how dramatically is he moving? Well, there's a couple uh, evidences that we have in the text. Um, one, of, one of the things that becomes very obvious, we didn't mention it this week, we mentioned it two weeks ago, is in verse 8. So there was what? Much rejoicing or much joy in the city. There was abounding joy in the city. That sounds to me like a whole lot of, of, uh, of the Samaritans were being saved. But you'll notice also in um, verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them to Peter and John. They sent to them Peter and John. What an interesting statement about what the apostles are saying, isn't it? You don't read this anywhere else about any other location. But what do you read about Samaria? In verse 14, when the apostles heard that what? That what? Who? Samaria. That's a pretty blanket statement, isn't it? This is a really blanket statement that is taking place here. They're hearing what again? Samaria heard the Word of God, or received the Word of God. What does it mean to receive the Word of God? Does it merely mean that the Word of God was preached? No. That would have said, they would have said then they heard the Word, right? But instead, what does it say? They received. There sounds like, it sounds like in Samaria, the Word of God had an amazing effect. Did it not? It had a dramatically powerful effect. Samaria received it. We can't miss this. And notice, this, this happens immediately after what begins to happen. Persecution. It's an interesting conne- connection here. Before then, there's, I mean, were a lot of people getting saved before? Well, yeah, 3,000 one day, 5,000 another day, and then others day by day, right? But then persecution comes. The Christians move from Jerusalem to Samaria, and all Samaria receives. It's Stunning! Now, I'm sure there were some pockets of people who didn't, but you get the idea. Samaria, in general, it received the Word of God. It's stunning. You know, we talk about persecution in all the wrong ways. This is an aside. We talk about persecution as, oh, that's really bad. But no, what happens when persecution comes? People get saved. People radically get saved. Dramatically get saved. How dramatically are they saved? Well, what did it say in verse, in, in verse what was it, 4 again? There were, or verse, I don't think it was 4. Uh, verse 8. Great joy. Great celebration. Now, what does great joy, much joy sound like? What? Where does that come from? Luke chapter 2. Don't be afraid. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. It's great joy to you. Isn't that what the text says? It is interesting that that Luke 2, this is my connection to the Christmas, by the way, that the Luke 2 statement, don't be afraid, for great joy, correct? It's interesting that, that this kind of connects with this passage because don't be afraid, now, no, nobody's been born in Jerusalem, in, in Bethlehem now, right? This, in, Luke, in Acts chapter 8. Because that's already happened, right? Luke 2. But in, was there reason for fear in Acts chapter 8? 
Yes, if persecution, great persecutions begin to take place just south of Samaria, what if you are a Samaritan, what would you expect to begin, if you lived in Samaria, what would you expect if great persecution was taking place in Jerusalem and all the Christians in Jerusalem fled to Samaria, for example, or many of them fled to Samaria, what would you as a Samaritan expect? Persecution's right behind them. Got that right. And how do they respond? And who hears about it? People in Jerusalem hear about it. You know what it says? Specifically the apostles. But it's, it's resonating down into Jerusalem. Does it sound like the people... And Could I just say something here? They hadn't even received the Spirit with power yet. That's interesting. They hadn't even received the Spirit with power yet, and they have, they have been saved, and it's reverberating off the walls. What is? Great joy. This ties in with what you were talking about. Great joy is resonating with the people. Their greatest joy is what? Their Redeemer has come and saved them and taken away their sin. And they're enthralled. Persecution is right coming to their door. And it will show up in a little bit in Samaria too. It does. Dramatically so. But here they are with their great joy, which shall be to all people reverberating off the walls. Great joy is filling the city. It's an interesting perspective, isn't it? Which jumps us down to verse 9. I want you to notice the very first word, at least in the ESV, of, of verse 9. The very first word is what? That's a really important word there. The very first word of, of verse 9 is but. It, and the word but is a conjunction. But what does the word but do as a conjunction that is the opposite of what the word and does? Now, I don't, we don't need to start singing, singing uh, conjunction junction songs here now. But you get the point. And connects similarities between, right? Okay? I like pizza and ice cream. You recognize there's a connection, right? The word but does what? It separates. Very important we see that. Because when he says, but, when Luke records, but, there was a man named Simon, we can't miss the, the place in where, which the word but is placed. What came right before the word but? Great joy, right? The joy, there was much joy, great joy in that city. Simon lives in that city. The contrast is between joy and Simon. Now it's important that we see that. The first thing as Luke introduces us to Simon is he tells us about Simon's, if I may use the term, his testimony. Isn't that what it is? He gives him his testimony. But there was a man named Simon. I just want to make sure we see that word but there. There was a man named Simon, because that's going to come into play later on. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. 
So there we have his past testimony, right? Now there's more parts to it here. But he describes himself as great. Correct? He describes himself as somebody really great. And he is, who is he? He's somebody great that has done what? Verse 9. He has amazed the people of Samaria by doing what? Practicing magic. Now, this is where I see the first connection between Moses and Pharaoh and, and that whole storyline of the plagues and uh, uh, Peter especially and, and Simon. Because you have the plagues, magic. Remember the Egyptian magicians come into play? So you've got the Egyptian magicians there and they're doing all these great magic tricks, aren't they? Trying to emulate in, in inept ways what God is doing through Moses. But he's doing magic. And up to this point in time, what do we find out? He previously practiced magic in the city and did what? And he amazed the people of Samaria. The people of Samaria were enthralled with this man Simon, this magician Simon. And of course, he considered himself great. Verse 10, they what? They all paid attention to him. And notice what it says. This is not, not somebody insignificant. They all, verse 10, paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. That is, from the lowest slaves to the rulers of Samaria. From the poorest of the poor to the richest of the rich, they were all amazed with Simon. And they all, every one of them, paid attention, rapt attention to this man Simon. And they said things about him. This man, verse, end of verse 10, is the power of God that is called great. Now, does that sound familiar to you, that statement, as they're describing Simon? I'm going to read it again. This is the power of God that is called great. Does that sound familiar? Let me read it one more time and emphasize something. This is the power of God. Does that sound familiar to you? It's everywhere, isn't it? It shows up in Acts chapter, little hint, 1. And it's called great. Verse 11. Oh, by the way, it's not referring to Simon in chapter 1. Definitely not referring to Simon in chapter 1. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So he'd been there for a while. He's practicing magic. And they're all enthralled with it. And enthralled with him. And then we come to the second but, verse 12. We have but Simon, and now we have verse 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. We'll just stop there for a second. The contrast now is between. Simon and, be careful, not Philip. What's that? The word being preached. The contrast is between, is between Simon and the word that Philip is preaching. And the word he's preaching is what? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And message about the kingdom of God. That's what it says. 
And when they hear this, when they hear Philip, obviously the Spirit is at work in their life. And what happens to the people of Samaria? They believe, but more specifically, let's dial it in a little closer, what is actually happening. The but tells us. But when they believe Peter, the, or Philip, I'm sorry, when they believe Philip, that is what he's preaching, the contrast is set up between who and, and, and what? The Simon and, the, and what Philip is preaching, right? So when the people of Samaria believed what Philip is preaching, the word but sets up that contrast completely. They, in effect, then therefore do what? They blow Simon off. They reject the message of Simon. Simon is no longer the power of God that is called great. Now the message of Philip is the power of God that is called great. Make sense? That's the contrast. Suddenly, Philip loses all the prestige, all the position, all everything that is being offered. Or that he had, I mean, I'm sorry. <clears throat> Why? Because the people hear the message, the Spirit is at work in the people of Samaria. The result is they believe the message of Jesus Christ and they convert. Can we use that word? I think so. They convert from Philip and his magical ways to Jesus Christ. Or Simon, I'm sorry. Simon and his magical ways to not Philip, that's why I said not Philip, but to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ from Simon to the gospel. And as a result of that, they are baptized, end of verse 12. And it's interesting that, that Luke records both men and women. That's an interesting statement. Not to us it isn't. But basically, it's a very interesting statement because only in the old, um, in the old days, in the Jewish days, the only people who could be members, as it were, of the, and, and, and connected to, identified with the temple were the males, the heads of home. Just the males, not the women. And here, in this case, it's radically different. Christ brings a new order, right? And the Gospel brings a new order. Who's being baptized here? Men and women are being baptized into Christ. Verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. That sounds really good in verse 13, doesn't it? Isn't that awesome? Sounds like it. What does it say? Again, even Simon. I love the way Luke writes it. Even Simon. The sorcerer. The magician. Simon, the one who's performing great miracles. The Simon, the one who everyone listened to. The, the Simon who, who everyone was amazed at. Who is the power. And I love the way, again, Luke puts it here, he didn't say, verse 10, that the man has the power of God. He said what? He is the power of God. That was their pre previous perspective. Even this Simon does what? Even this Simon himself what? Believed. And was baptized. And after being baptized, what did he do? He continued with Philip. That is, he hung out with Philip. 
That is, he was taught by Philip. That is, he was going to, can I use the term? I think I can. He was going to Philip seminars. He was going to Philip conventions. He was listening with rapt attention to everything Philip said. He went on with Philip. This is an amazing statement. Luke singles out Philip, or singles out Simon, I'm sorry. The one who was was in such a position, now he does what? He seemingly is submitting to Philip, learning from Philip, being taught by Philip. He's continuing with Philip. And while continuing with Philip, he's observing these signs and great miracles that Philip's, Philip's performing. And he was amazed. And rightly so. I mean, seeing signs and miracles would be pretty amazing, wouldn't they? I mean, it'd be pretty stunning. He's staying with Philip. He's learning. He's observing. He believed, Luke said. He believed. He's baptized. Verse 14. Now, when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. It's not that they got saved without the Holy Spirit. What he's referring to is the Spirit with power, Luke, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1. You will receive the Spirit with power, correct? That's what we have here. It's not that they got saved outside of the Spirit's work. These people are saved. But at this point in time, what is happening is, and it just disappears as we work our way through uh, the book of Acts, but, and, and, and very quickly what we're going to find is that when people are saved, they immediately have the Spirit with power. But early on, there is this like two-step transition we see occasionally. We saw it early on in, in the book of Acts. We're seeing it again here in Acts chapter 8, where, where they are saved and baptized, but they don't have the... The Spirit power in, with power yet, who is going to totally trans, trans, or, uh, transform them. Could I just stop on that for a second, though? Because here's what I find really intriguing, friends, about the text up to this point in time. He said, what again? When the, this is what Luke said again. Now, when the, people, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of, of the Lord Jesus. Connect that statement, verse 12 and following that we just read, with verse 8. And let that just ruminate in you for a second. They've been saved. They've been baptized. They've identified with Christ. Correct? They have a new heart. But they don't yet have the Spirit with power. And yet, what do we find in verse 8? What's that? Much rejoicing or great rejoicing. Even though they know what's coming, they're great rejoicing. I find this perspective, I've got to be honest with you, kind of st- staggering. 
They don't even have the Spirit with power yet. And they are enthralled. They don't even have the Spirit with power yet. And their joy and their rejoicing is through the roof. It's absolutely through the roof. Now, we've already talked about that. On one level, we can start to ask ourselves, what's this going to look like when the Spirit comes with power? Right? I mean, shouldn't we ask ourselves that question? What's it going to look like when the Spirit comes with power on them? If this is what's happening and the Spirit's not even on them with power yet, what's going to happen when He's there with power? But then the second question we need to ask ourselves is a little more painful. Rusty summed it up really well. I'll just say what he said. Where's my joy? Where's your joy? This is challenging to me. This is really challenging. The Spirit hasn't even come on them with power yet. They are just enthralled. And later on, the Spirit comes with power at salvation. Where's the power? Too often, I've got to be honest with you, too often it seems to me like most Christians are like, they live life, life with not even potential power. It's like, remember the old incandescent light bulbs? A lot of you probably still have them in your house. Incandescent light bulbs, you know, they got the wire going across from the two poles, and when the power goes in, it glows, right? And you have light. But the incandescent light bulb doesn't have any potential power if it's not plugged into the wall, does it? What good is an incandescent light bulb with no connection to power? None. No good at all. It's useless. It gives you nothing. Too often, I think that's exactly what too often Christians, people who claim to be Christians are. It's like, I got the posts. I got the wire. But no matter how many times you turn that that switch, nothing comes on. And you know we do that, right? When you you turn the knob and it doesn't come on, what do you do? Click, 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 like as if it's going to change. And I find too often that's the way Christians are. At least people who claim to be Christians. Like the incandescent light bulb. Yeah, I got the, I got the post. I got the wire. Woo! There's no power. And we even spin the, we even spin the knob. <laughs> click, 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 click. No power. I mean, I get the sense when I read this text, the Holy Spirit hadn't even come upon them with power yet. But there's still power because they have the Holy Spirit. Correct? And even without the Spirit with power, that is, He hasn't brought this special power that He promised on them yet. He will in just a second. 
They're not just two posts with a wire in between, are they? You know, you know what they are? They're like a, a three-way light bulb. Except it's only two-way. That's what they are. They're on the first switch. And there's power. And what's happening? Is the light shining? Is it shining dramatically? All the way to Jerusalem. Is it bright? Is it blindingly bright? It's described as much or great joy, isn't it? Which is a fulfillment of Luke 2, what the angel said. Even before the second switch is turned, and it will be in just a little bit. But even before the second switch is turned, the second click happens, as it were, on this picture of a light bulb, this metaphorical light bulb. The light is shining, and it's shining bright. And I find that challenging. I find this very challenging. And remember, there's a contrast in the text, isn't there? And the contrast is between, up this point is going to be, is between who and who? Simon and the message that Philip's preaching, right? That's the contrast. And the only person that's in Samaria at this point in time with the second switch on is who? Is who? Philip. Philip's second switch is on. Everybody else in Samaria's first switch. But Simon. There's those two words. Right? But Simon. He's amazed. Yeah, he's definitely amazed. But notice what comes up next. Verse 17, Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The people of Samaria, Peter and John are walking around laying their hands on people. And that's how God uses, because in, in the old days, the laying on of hands was a, a, a special blessing. It was a picture of a special blessing. And so what they're doing is they're laying their hands on them, and God is using that as the Conduit is probably the wrong term. It's more the idea of the picture of this is the Spirit coming upon you with power. And so what happens? <clears throat> Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So they received the Holy Spirit. Now they have it with what? With power. Verse 18, now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying on the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now there's a couple things we can say about this text. And numerous things actually. But one of the things that I find very intriguing is it doesn't say that he received the power, does it? No. He's, he's observing the laying on of hands on these people and they're receiving power. They're receiving the Holy Spirit in power. Now it doesn't describe at this point in time how they respond, but you know it, it, it's second switch time. He's observing it and he's amazed at what he's seeing. He's stunned at what he's seeing, right? He is absolutely stunned as he observes 
the process. And his answer to that is not, I need you to lay your hands on me. Is it? His answer is what? I'll pay you. He wants to buy, yes. He wants to not just get the second switch, he wants the third. He wants what the apostles have. It's interesting. So he says to them, again, give me this power so that also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even have the Holy Spirit with power. But could I submit to you something? I would argue he doesn't even have the Holy Spirit. Now this is where the conflict comes in. Because what does verse 13 say? He believed. Isn't that what it says? He believed. And he was also baptized. Then he followed Philip. And he learned from Philip. He sat at his feet. He was like a disciple of Philip. He believed. Certainly he was saved, right? Well, let's follow the text. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, he offered them money as if he could buy, could I just say this? As if he could buy God. It's not just buy the power because it's the power of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's trying to buy the Holy Spirit. Give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Can I just say this real quick? Or ask this question? Where's his focus? What does he want? Yeah, you think? Isn't that what he's after? I like the way you put it, Ken. He's after improving his magic act. Does this sound vaguely familiar, by the way? Can you think of anybody else who kind of fell in the same trap? Thank you. Was not Judas in the same position? Wasn't he? Not magic. He wasn't after magic. What was he after? Money and position. Wasn't he? In the kingdom when it came. Isn't that what he was after? Money and position. And when he saw that neither one were coming his way, then he what? He bailed and he went to the other side. (coughs) Or a better way to put it is, he revealed his true colors. So we have here, Simon, give me this power also that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But, here's the next but, and then now we're introduced to the next person, right? We've already been introduced to him, but here it is. But Peter said to him, a contrasting statement again, you, contrasting with what? What Simon just said. Simon said, I want that. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. If you don't pick up there that Simon's not a believer, then you missed it. What word did he use? What's the operative word in in Peter's statement? Perish. That is not a word for believers anywhere in the Scriptures. Simon, may your silver 
perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Which tells us that Simon was after all the wrong things. And then to add to it, verse 21, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. And this matter, I would argue, is not talking about what the apostles are doing. When he says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, he's talking about what do you think? What's that? Salvation. The kingdom of God. Jesus Christ. Because that was the message. Right? The message that Philip was preaching was, Jesus Christ, the name of Jesus, and the kingdom of God. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. It's interesting. Part is probably referencing the name of Jesus. Lot is probably connected to the kingdom of God. If you're Lot, you think of what? Space. You have no space in the kingdom of God. You have no part of the name of Jesus Christ. And so Peter continues, for your heart is not right before God. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you? Vaguely familiar? Who who was that said to? Not the same words, but the idea. Yeah, but I'm thinking more in the Gospels. No. Peter. What did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, for what? Your mind is not on heavenly things, but on earthly things. Horrible condemnation. Now, the connection with Peter is only partial, right? Was that statement true that Jesus made? Yes. But Jesus did not say, what? You have no part nor lot in this. This was a moment in time for Peter, wasn't it? And everything changes later on, right? So, at this point, we can hope that maybe things will change with with Simon, right? Let's continue on. Your heart is not right before God. Verse 22, then Peter says what? The only thing that can be said, correct? Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. What a horrifying statement. Simon, at this late date, that's the idea, right? At this late date, you better repent. You've heard the message of the name of the Lord Jesus and the Kingdom of God. At this late date, you better repent because already condemnation has been declared in the previous verse the previous two verses, repent therefore this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, and the scary statement is, if what? If possible. Even for Peter, this is really, really in doubt. If possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. Why is, why is it such a if possible statement? Because he's heard the gospel and he preached by Philip and he played the part, didn't he? He played the part. 
but really it wasn't real. This, this should resonate with us as reminding us of something else stated in where? Hebrews chapter, anybody remember? Six. Hebrews chapter six, people who are what? They tasted of the good things of God and do what? Walk away and it says what? They are what? No longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's the if possible. You need to pray, Simon. You need to pray for repentance at this late date that perhaps there may be forgiveness of your soul and a change in your heart. Verse 23, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Interesting parallel statements with the conjunction between the gall of bitterness. We've all had this happen to us. Excuse me for being a little graphic, but you've all had this happen, haven't you? Where you're doing something, maybe you're bending over, or maybe you exercise a little too hard, and all suddenly you get that you know what I'm talking about? The acid reflux. And up it comes into the back of your mouth. You all been there, right? Anybody never have that? If not, you are really fortunate. Yeah, Rusty over there, what are you talking about? Huh? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about. That, that There's nothing pleasant about that, is there? You get it there and, and it, it's nasty. It like dominates your thinking, doesn't it? It dominates everything about you at that moment, doesn't it? But it's not just a moment, is it? What do you do? You go and grab a glass of water and drink it. Does it go away? Abby, does it go away? No, it's not. It does. It's still. You take some Listerines and gargle. Is it, is it gone? No, it's still there. And it's downright nasty. It's, it's one of the grossest things you ever put in your mouth. You didn't put it there. Your body put it there. That's what he's talking about here. When, when Peter speaks to Simon, he's saying, I see that, that the, what is that stuff called? You remember? Bile. You, the bile is, is in you. He's not talking physically. He's saying, I see that your life is summed up in bile. Your life is summed up as bile. And you are in the bond of iniquity. You're bound up in iniquity. And the greatest iniquity of Simon, can I just submit this to you, is not that he tried to buy. It's bad. They tried to buy power. But that's just the evidence of where his heart is. That's just the evidence that in believing he didn't believe. Oh, he believed, but not by the Spirit. He believed in the same way that many other people in the Scriptures believed but perished. Remember the Scriptures say that in that day many will say, Lord, Lord, but the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because the simple reality is the Spirit was not at work in their life. They believed, but for all the wrong reasons. I want to remind you that even Satan and the demons believe and they tremble, James says. The real contrast to the text 
is not Simon and Philip's message. The real contrast in the text is not um, uh, Simon and Peter. The real contrast in the text is Simon and the rest of the Samaritans. That's the real contrast. You have these Samaritans who are full of great joy and it's exploding and reverberating all over the walls of the city. They are thrilled with Jesus. They're thrilled with their salvation. They're captivated with their sins have been paid for. They are set free and they have the righteousness of Jesus. And they couldn't contain it. And you got Simon. Who, although he's following Philip, what does it say he's amazed by? No, not in the earlier verse. What was he amazed by? Miracles and signs. Does that sound familiar to you? Does it sound familiar? It's the Gospels, isn't it? The people are following Jesus everywhere, and all they're doing is saying, What? Give us more signs. Perform more miracles. And what does Jesus finally say? Yes, and an unbelieving generation wants a sign. It also says. And what is, where is Simon? He wants the perks. But he doesn't want Jesus. He wants the benefits. But the evidence is clear now, isn't it? He doesn't want salvation. He doesn't want what salvation really is. He just wants the benefits. Give us signs. Give us miracles. Do this for us. Do that for us. Do something else. Wow, these are all really cool. I want the identity, but I don't want the identity. The real identity. Now, do things change for Simon? Let's take a peek. Verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, if you really look at that text, that text ought to take your breath away. It ought to absolutely floor you. Peter said what? I want to read it again. Verse 22, repent, therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Know what he said? That's what Peter said. How does Simon respond to Peter's clear and direct declaration? Pray for me to the Lord. Is Simon praying? No, he is not. Even at this late date where he is being the, the, the declarations made to him, Simon, at this date, pray! Simon says, pray for me to the Lord. And what does he ask Peter to pray for? That nothing of what you have said may come upon me. That it sounds like? Pray for me for safety! <laughs> if I may be blunt. Simon repent? No. 
He just prays, he just asks, I'm sorry, he doesn't pray, he asks Peter to pray for him that these things don't happen. That's it. What an amazing and stunning contrast between Simon and the Samaritans. They're enthralled with Jesus. They're enthralled with the name of Jesus. They're enthralled with the kingdom of God even before the power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Simon is amazed at all the wrong things. Not praying. He's not praying. He's not interested in repenting. He's only interested in some sort of crazy rescue from the declaration of what was going to happen to him. Perish. Because that's what was declared, right? He's going to perish. Pray that these things don't happen, Simon. I can only imagine Simon Peter's incredulous look at him. Like, serious? Really? What do we have here? What we have is this, what I would argue is probably one of the more stunning and stark contrasts between possessors of Christianity, of Christ, and, and professors of Christ. If we didn't get it, if we didn't get it with Ananias and Sapphira, if we didn't get it with the Hellenized Jews, I'm being general on the Hellenized Jews, we have to see it here with, with Simon, the magician, in contrast to the Samaritans of Samaria. They hear the word of God and they are transformed. Even before the Spirit comes upon with power, they're transformed and they're enthralled with the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God. It's their heart beats the name of Jesus Christ. Their heart beats the kingdom of God. It begins to become their modus operandi. It begins to become their first principles and their primary principles. Who is Jesus and what's his kingdom about? If I put it a different way, for the, for the Samaritans, you know what's, what, what they're enthralled with? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that what we see here? Isn't that exactly what we see here? And with Simon, what do we see? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be my name. Because remember, he had that name, didn't he? And now doesn't he want it back? Doesn't he? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be my name. My kingdom come, my will be done. Even if i got to spend money to get it. On earth as it ought to be in heaven. Is that what we find with Simon? Can I just submit to you? That's what we find with a lot of people who claim to be Christians. Remember we talked about the light bulb? This is what we find with a lot of Christians, people who name the name of Jesus, but there doesn't seem to be any power. I mean, they're not even a nightlight. Let's be honest. Too often, we see Christians that don't even seem to be a nightlight. They don't even have a light that is like two feet. Doesn't mean we've got to get a bigger bulb because there's no power. 
What the Samaritans needed was what? The Holy Spirit. What did they receive? The Holy Spirit. They got saved. And then later on, they received the Holy Spirit with power, right? But even before then, they were full of joy, full of rejoicing. Simon, full of himself. Which is no different from what so often we find in, in people who name the name of Jesus, right? Full of Jesus or full of self? Full of Jesus or full of comfort? Full of Jesus, full of ease. Full of Jesus, full of financial security. Full of Jesus, full of health. Full of Jesus, full of safety. Full of Jesus, full of fame. Full of Jesus, full of comfort. Full of Jesus, full of nice family. Full of Jesus, or full of something else. Isn't that what we find? That's the contrast here, isn't it? I, I think it's pretty stunning. It's stark. And I, I would argue the text is trying to present this idea. Luke is presenting the idea that people who are in the church are either Samaritans or they are Simons. It's one or the other. Has the gospel had effect? If you go all the way back to Mount Sinai. You've heard me talk about it before. God is on top of the mountain in the form of a cloud and there's thunder and there's lightning and there's rumbling and the very earth is shaking and the people are excited or are they fearful? They're fearful and so they send who? They send Moses to go for them. <clears throat> and they say, whatever he says to you, we will do. And God responds to that, doesn't He? And He says what? He says, I hear their words and their words are good words. Yeah, they're good words. Oh, how I wish their heart was there with those words. Samaritans? Simons. Samaritans? Simons. What troubles me, I think, if I may just be so bold as to say this, today I'm pretty well convinced the church in the non-persecuted world is flipped completely the opposite of this story. What do we have in this story? We have all of Samaria is full of what? Full of what? Rejoicing and joy, isn't it? And you got one guy. You got one guy. Who's after something different? I fear for the church in the unpersecuted world that we have inverted this story completely. There's a few pockets where you will see great joy reverberating. There are some. But for the most part, what do you find? Joy in Christ? For the most part, do we find the church is full of joy in Christ? For the most part, do we find ever that people are talking about... Let me just be really blunt. Does anybody ever talk about Redeeming Grace Baptist Church is full of joy? I just want to be blunt. I mean, it travel all the way down to Jerusalem. And this isn't the only time that message travels. Doesn't Paul hear about the various churches and how they're doing well at times? 
He does. Did anybody talk about the joy that's re resonating out of Redeeming Grace Baptist Church? Does anybody? It's an important question. It's a painful question. I hate to be so painful on Christmas season, but my goodness. I, I don't want to do injustice to the text. Is there any rebounding and reverberating joy in our midst? Forget about bouncing out of the church. In our midst. Are we people enthralled with the name of Jesus and the kingdom of God and it captivates us? Or are we in it for something else? Because it can't be, well, I'm in it, but it's not there yet. That's, that's not how it works. <laughs> because now the Spirit comes with power when we get saved. So are we Simons? Or are we Samaritans? Important question. What's the answer if I look at myself and I say, Ugh, I don't want to answer that question. I don't want to think about that question. Well, the answer is the answer of Peter. The answer is repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Time is short, friends. I hear that word, if possible, here. I hear it painfully. We have heard the word, haven't we? We have heard the truth, haven't we? We've heard the truth of the kingdom of God. We've heard the truth in the name of Jesus. If the joy is not there, the answer is not conjure it up, which is where most pastors will go. Get out there and be full of joy. It's repent. It is repent. Joy comes in the morning, the Scripture says. Joy comes via repentance, because when I repent, what does God say about if we confess our sins, what? Ken? And that's 1 John, isn't it? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Could I say something? If He forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness, dude, <laughs> if that doesn't produce joy, then we didn't really repent. We really didn't. We did some sort of negotiated repentance. Which is what Simon's trying to do. The repentance in the Scripture is, I surrender all. All to Him I owe. And the rest of that song. That's the answer. Verse 22. Because if you don't find yourself being someone who is full of joy... Because he promised, didn't the angels promise it? Luke 2? 
Shall be joy to all people, right? If it's not you, verse 23, you're full of the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And if you don't repent, what does the Scripture say here? May your silver perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. No, maybe it's not money for you. Maybe it's something else. But that's the contrast here. Samaritans didn't think they could buy. They just, they just knew they needed Jesus. They were hopeless without Him. And they were enthralled with Him as a result. Simon, other reasons. And it had nothing to do with eternity. It had nothing to do with Jesus. It had nothing to do with the kingdom of God. As evidence, so clearly. And that's what I'm trying to say, is the evidence is clear, I would argue, for the vast swath of Christianity. <clears throat> the thing that is not there for the vast swath of Christianity is the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. It's something else. And if it's something else, we will perish with it. That's what Peter says. Whatever that is, we will perish with it. Repent. And perhaps... Perhaps, if, even at this late date, if possible, we'll be forgiven and our hearts will be purged and we'll be made new. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> Somehow, somewhere along the way, for too many, we have gone off the rails. And for too many, we can even be described as Simon who believed and was baptized. And even continued. And we miss the point that it sounds so much like those four, the first three soils. But the Samaritans were the fourth soil, evidently. We need Your Spirit. We need Your Spirit to work. We know, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when the Spirit moves in us mightily, joy does come in the morning. You have promised it. So Lord, I pray that You will bring our hearts to repentance. That Your Spirit will work mightily within us in power. And that we will have joy unimaginable and that you will be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat>